Welcome to the Exponential Investor Podcast. Want to be a better, smarter, more clued up investor? Well, you've come to the right place. We cover the breakthrough investment ideas you don't hear about in the mainstream to keep you on top of the megatrends and opportunities reshaping our world. And welcome back to the Exponential Investor Podcast. I am your solo host once again, Shay Russell. Uh, Sam couldn't join me today as he said he wasn't feeling well. So once again, you have got me, but that suits me just fine because we can sit here and talk about all things commodities. Uh, So if you're not into commodities or you don't care for what I've got to say, hit pause, skip and come back next week when I promise you we will have a tech heavy episode next week, but this week we are going to indulge in everything I love while Sam isn't around to tell me what to do. Uh, first things first, I'm going to talk about the Rule Investor Investment Symposium. So I am fresh from Fort Lauderdale in Florida. I arrived home uh, unbelievably early Monday morning uh, and I left Saturday morning uh, I've missed an entire portion of my life and it turned out to be a 35-hour journey door to door. So I'm really glad we're recording this podcast today because for the past 48 hours, I have not been okay. Now, I want to cover, um, I think last week's podcast, I touched lightly on some of the speakers that I'd heard for the first day's presentation. Well, today I sort of wanted to delve into a bit more depth with what um, everybody was talking about. So I've got a few things that I want to share. So just forgive me while I flick through my notes because I have about 20 pages of notes. That's kind of what happens when you head to a rural investment conference. You write down a lot of things, which is really good because there's there's some incredibly clever people. Uh, First things first, where are we going to start? I would say chronological order, but that's absolutely not what's going to happen. Um, Okay, do you know what? I'm going to start with one of my absolute favourite panels of all time. Uh, Each year, Rick hosts what's called the Living Legends panel. And it's basically uh, a a panel of six or seven people who have built uh, not just mines, but multi billion dollar companies. Uh, so the whole idea is uh, Rick asks some questions and it's all about extracting knowledge and things that they've learned over their journey of building these multi-billion dollar companies. A classic example is a gentleman by the name of Rob McEwen, probably the nicest man you will ever meet in this industry. Uh, now, Rob McEwen was one of the founders of uh Gold uh, Gold Corporation. Oh, God, I hope I've got that right now. It's too late to check my notes. Uh, and he's gone on. He's now running McEwen Mining. Um, and, he, you know, he's got an in- incredible wealth of knowledge there. Uh, another gentleman is called Ross Beatty. Uh, Ross Beatty has launched, I think he said 15 or 16 successful mining companies in his time. Uh, and basically the way he puts it is he's a serial entrepreneur. He basically likes just going out, finding stuff, turning it into a work operating mine and then moving on to the next project. Um, another one gentleman who is absolutely fabulous to watch and listen to is a gentleman by the name of Robert Friedland. Now, Robert Friedland is absolutely shameless. When it comes to promoting his company, uh, Ivanhoe Mines, or in this case, his latest one, Ivanhoe Electric. Uh, and he tells a great story and you can't help it that he, he makes jokes about why you should buy shares in his company and that they're always trading at a discount as far as he's concerned. But Robert Friedland is actually the gentleman I want to talk about today. Sorry, my watch is banging. I'm going to take it off. I don't think I can handle that noise in the background the whole time. Um, Robert Friedland is incredibly forward thinking. You know, we're looking at a man, again, a serial entrepreneur, 
who has spent lots of his time exploring for uh, unloved metals, in, for the exa- in this example, copper, in countries that most people leave alone. And the reason most people leave them alone is because of the serious restriction risk. Uh, so, for example, his latest project that's now successful uh, is a copper mine, possibly going to be one of the world's bigger copper mines when it's up and producing out in Africa. Uh, and one of the stories he was telling is that he didn't give up on this project and it's taken nearly three decades for this mine to go from find to operational mine producing copper concentrate out of it. Um, It it was an incredible story of persistence. Uh, And he said every step of the way, um, you know, he's made jokes that every, uh, it was resistance from the government, resistance from people financing the deal, resistance from shareholders because they didn't want um, Robert to be operating in an area that basically, um, you know, has a hit and miss strike rate when it comes to uh, successful mind. But he didn't give up. It was an incredible tale of um, basically persistence and how he stuck to his guns each way through. And every time he, you know, essentially for lack of a better way of putting it, he got his ass handed to him. He just kept going back because he understood that the value of the copper project that was there. Um, a little tidbit that he pointed out during this session, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, Robert is unashamedly pro-hying female employees in um, in these African mines. And he said one of the reasons is uh, is that they handle the equipment better. So they show up to work on time. He said not only that, they seem to project manage his site sections of his sites much better than some of the male employees. Um, this is what I mean by he's controversial and he doesn't have any problem putting his views out there and he said and he will do this again and again and again is because in his experience he has found these uh, female employees to be better operators in his mind. Now whether that's true or not I don't know. Robert is only speaking from his experience but he has billions of dollars more than me so and when it comes to operating a mind I'm also going to put out there that he knows a lot more than me as well. Now this naturally, very naturally, because, you know, every conversational thread with me is incredibly natural, uh, leads me to my next key takeaway from the conference, and that is copper. Now, if you're not sick of me talking about copper yet, then I clearly haven't talked about it enough, uh, because after four days at the uh, the, the Rule, I've got to get the name right, uh, the Rural Investment Symposium, it was nothing but copper. Almost every miner, GEO, um, mining engineer, investment analyst, Rick himself, almost everybody came out on that stage and talked about the overwhelming shortfall of copper that we are facing in years to come. Uh, and basically, it's a classic example of years of underinvestment. Uh, it's an unloved base metal. Basically, everybody just assume it's going to be there. And the energy transition that's coming up is going to put unprecedented pressure on existing copper supplies. Uh, in fact, there was one statistic I read that we're going to need about 19 million metric tons of copper by 2050. Now, to put that figure in perspective, we globally produce about 20 million metric tons of copper a year. Uh, So basically, we need to somehow double uh, production of copper between now and in the next 30 years. But the problem to do that, and this was highlighted again and again and again at the conference, is there has been no investment or significant underinvestment in bringing copper mines uh, to fruition. Now, part of the reason is is base metals... uh, (laughs) 
Base metals aren't sexy. Like, let's be honest. You know, nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to go start a copper mine today. No investor wakes up and says, you know what I need? I need some copper. Uh, it doesn't generate headlines in the press. It's not as exciting as gold because copper doesn't move in double-digit price gains overnight and copper doesn't have a sexy story like lithium does or cobalt does, um, which is why investors are reluctant to invest in it. The other big reason that investors are reluctant to back a po- copper project is it can take decades decades to bring a copper project online and they are extraordinarily capital intensive at the startup phase. Uh, a classic example is I was talking to one uh, copper a copper um, developer, so he's in the process of bringing a mine on site in Chile and basically he was saying that uh, his project will be up and running in less than 15 years, which is a miracle for a cop- what's called a copper porphyry project. So that's the type of ore body. Most um, copper projects can take, on average, 15 to 20 years from discovery through to actually pouring the copper concentrate uh, out of their production plant. So it's that time frame. Um, investors often aren't willing to hang around to see these stocks come to fruition. Uh, not only that, it's the billion or so dollars that it is involved in setting up a copper mine. And that's a billion dollars before we even get any copper out of the ground, before any of these companies have made any money. So these are just two reasons why investors um, and, um, and mine builders shy away from copper is it's it's hard work. They're not easy to set up. Gold, a gold mine you can set up relatively easy. You basically dig a hole, you can sift through it on site. You don't need billions of dollars in equipment to process the gold and then you can ship it back off to a refiner and they do the hard work for you. It doesn't work like that with copper, which is why investors often um, ignore these incredible opportunities and also too why uh, money men, for lack of a better word, don't go and put their money into them because it could be two decades before they see a return on investment. This is partly why we will be facing a copper deficit in the next decade. Um, So the the big, big, big conversation with, as I said, with almost every panellist was we haven't spent enough money looking for copper. We don't have enough um, in-ground based on known resources uh, and they take so long to bring online that the supply demand element for copper could be out of whack for almost a decade. And out of whack is clearly the professional term in this example. So that was my big key takeaway from that one. Um, there's a, I'm trying to work out what was the other thing. Look, inflation was another huge topic, but it was very US centric. So I don't really think it's relevant to today's podcast. Um, big talk around what the Fed's doing or how the Fed's mismanaging everything. Not enough takeaways that I can go apply that to what the Bank of England's doing and how inflation is impacting the UK economy. So that's separate research. We'll delve into it at another time. Uh, wait, let me just flick down my notes to a lovely gentleman by the uh, name by the name of Adrian Day. He's a good, funny guy. Very clever man. Um, So probably one of my key takeaways from him in this is inflation. I did say I wasn't going to touch on it, but this has led to some of the things I've been writing about since I started. And this is about um, commodity prices are in everything we touch. Now his quote, and this one really resonated with me, commodity prices feed into producer prices, which feed into consumer prices. And his point here is this means that it is unlikely consumer prices have peaked yet. So even though commodity prices have started to fall over the past few months, 
it can take up to 12 months for some of the commodity price inputs to filter through to the consumer prices. So while places in the US and places in the UK and even Australia now, we are seeing increasingly high inflation numbers, given that they're not representative of the raw inputs it it took to make them yet, I would say that the consumer prices, the, so the end price point that you and I are paying, we haven't seen the worst of it yet, which means things are going to um, cost more for some considerable period of time. Uh, also, he throws a number out there. Again, it's US-centric, but it is worth talking about. Um, if you follow in the US a company called Shadow Stats or the Barron CPI, which is just a newsletter over there, they calculate that CBI is a CPI, consume, the consumer price index in the US, is running at about 17% rather than the official infl- figure of uh, 9% that we see the US economy. I'd get thrown around with the US economy. So that was, as I said, it was pretty US-centric, but that point about con- uh, commodity prices feed into producer prices, feed into consumer prices, very, very powerful. Now, I've got more notes on Friedland that have just come through here. Uh, let me see if I can find one of my favourite thing. Oh, This is another good one. Now, this one, this comment is for all the mining nerds out there. Um, There's probably very few people who get excited about this type of tidbit, but certainly from an investment analyst point of view, this is what I'm looking for. Now, back in, I'd love to say 2018, but it might be 2019, a iron ore dam tailing wall for Vale mine, or for a Brazilian mine um, owned by Vale, collapsed. Uh, and it was actually, it's, it, it was quite catastrophic. It killed do- um, dozens of people. Uh, and it was one of the reasons why we started to see a shortfall in the copper market. It's because um, Vale, the Vale mine wasn't producing as much copper as before. Sorry, my dog's come to say hi. Um, and it, and, and it, it really did impact the iron ore market. Now, something Ryan Friedland put out there, uh, and I'll just let me go to the notes, is that all dam tailings now need to be built to withstand perpetuity. Now, that's in contrast to all previous dam tailing mines, which really only needed to last about 50 years. So from an ESG point of view, from an ESG point of view, um, this tells you that governments are becoming more strict on um, miners and how they treat dam tailings, which is basically um, waste or byproduct that can't, that has no immediate monetary value for a miner. Um, th- this tells you that there has been a big flip from uh, and from governments when it comes to ESG, that, you know, a dam tailing no longer needs to last just half a century, that governments are expecting these dam tailings to last until the mine goes into the reclamation phase and the reclamation phase is when uh, basically a fancy word for saying land rehabilitation. That's when they close the mine up, you know, either uh, fill it, infill it or, you know, close up the holes uh, and basically start to rehabilitate the land on top. That's when you start treating the dam tailings. Um, this is, and he pointed out that this adds a consider- considerable risk to existing operating mines. Now, I didn't actually know this myself. Um, and I have before in the past had certain concerns about the the size and the volume of dam, uh, dam tailings at certain miners. So if you are a mining nerd out there and you are looking into companies uh, yourself that you've been hoping to invest in, ask yourself how old is the mine site? Uh, and then that'll give you an idea of how far into the dam tailing story, like how old are these dam tailings? Now, generally dam tailings are one of the first things that get built before a company 
goes into production. So if you've got a company that's been operating for uh, 10 years, odds are that that dam tailing is uh, about to, in between 10 to 15 years old. So just tuck that one in the tidbit of your brain. Very, very useful information. Um, now, what else was there that I wanted to cover today? Oh, just to give you an idea of how bullish Robert Friedlin is on um, copper. Again, remember, he's promoting a company that is mining copper out of Africa. He made a, a, a very funny joke that I would like to share. He says, don't buy my shares, build your house out of copper bricks, sell it in 10 years, and with the profits, buy a fleet of electric Lambos with it. Look, I'm probably not going to build a house out of copper bricks, but nonetheless, I thought it was a pretty cool takeaway. Um, finally, I want to touch lightly on the exploration panel, which um, again, this was probably just for the mining nerds, incredibly exciting. Um, the main topic of conversation though is when, when, when a stock's going to do better, when a commodity stock's going to do better, when our exploration stock's going to do better, when, uh, you know, developer and producer stock's going to do better. Um, it seems that a lot of shareholders are incredibly frustrated with the lull in prices that they're seeing from commodities, uh, in commodity-related stocks right now. And that was shared amongst the panel, I can absolutely assure you. Uh, Rick's key takeaway is that the best time to invest in any sector is when the rest of the market hates it. Um, he's argument was that there's basically plenty of value-based companies going around. You just needed to do some work. Um, however, oh, excuse me. Um, uh, however, almost everybody did agree that this is investors new to, to commodity markets need to be prepared for, you know, boring periods or periods where we are losing money on our positions because commodities have been hit hard. And that is being compounded by the Chinese and the US economy slowing down and further putting pressure on these commodity related stocks. However, the key takeaway message from this particular exploration panel was it doesn't matter how, you know, how much of a lull these commodity stocks are. Um, excuse me, I'm tripping over my words. Uh, it doesn't matter how long these commodity-related stocks are in a lull for, whether it's three months or 12 months. The reality is there is still an incredible amount of growth to come over the next two decades, and that is up against significant underinvestment. Or, you know, we've had no serious exploration investment for the past 20 years. You know, Rick Rule likes to make a joke that uh, most major mining companies, you know, when prices get a bit hot, start, you know, pick out the phone book and go to call their internal exploration department only to discover that they sacked them 10 years ago. Well, this exploration panel absolutely reiterated that, but they probably weren't as funny as Rick. Um, and they said that because there's been significant underinvestment, really what this lull in the markets is providing investors with is an opportunity to learn how to value companies, to learn how to assess a good mining stock from a bad mining stock. And then the answer on what to do next was be patient. That's it. That was the that's the key to it all. It is anybody who's been in the mining sector for a long time uh, knows that you can't have a tomorrow mindset. You need to think decades ahead, and that's exactly what's happening right happening right now with depressed prices. All right, I have waffled on for a considerable period of time. Thank you very much for tolerating me today. Without Sam to uh, shepherd my conversation, so it made sense. All right, so that is enough copper commodities chat, and obviously the. Key key message being patience for today. Uh, I would just like to say, to quote Sam, thanks for watching and bye for now.